Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. You can become a, a servant of Jesus Christ from any background. Once you meet him, he'll change your life forever. And then secondly, he, Paul's called an apostle. Apostolos is the Greek word. It means a delegate, a messenger, one who's sent forth with orders. And so that's what Paul did. He went all over the ancient world telling other people, here's, here's, here it is simply put, how to be free. Do you know that this community this morning could be called that we are a community of freed slaves. This is a community of freed slaves. Slaves to what? Jesus said any man or woman who commits sin is a slave to sin. How many of you could say, you could come up here right now and tell your story about how sin enslaved you? Look, it did for all of us in different ways. And Jesus Christ broke those chains. He opened the prison door. He made you free. And that's why Paul says, I'm now a messenger of that message. This is a community of freed slaves. And Paul says, look, I'm going to go all over the world and tell other people how they can be free. Are you doing that? Do you see ministry as an opportunity to tell people how to be free? We get so fearful about evangelism, but if you think of, about evangelism in that sense, that there's a bunch of people in chains and bondage that need to know where freedom is, will you hold back? Will you hold the key in your pocket and not take it out? That seems silly, doesn't it? We have people walking around, think of this image, in chains like this walking around, and we're not going to give them the key? Why would we do that? Well, that's the idea. Jesus Christ is the message that Paul preaches, and he preaches it as an apostle, one sent out by God to tell people where to buy freedom. He says, I've been set apart, look at verse, uh, well, that's set apart for the gospel of God is actually Romans 1.1, but let's read the end of Titus 1.1. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So, Paul says, I've been, I'm doing what I'm doing for the faith of those chosen of God. That is, it could be their initial faith, verse 1, or it could be the growth of their faith, or I think it could be both. The church's ministry is pretty simple. It's to win people to the Lord and then grow them up in their most holy faith, right? So we're try to, we try to go out and win them, and then we, of course, want to grow them up. So, he says, for the faith of those chosen, by the way, you are chosen of God, chosen from the foundation of the world. You are the elect of God. Now, when people hear about election, they get a little nervous. Like, what does that mean, election? Did he elect some and not elect others? How does this work? I want to know more about election. Well, let me just say this. There have been people debating the concept of predestination and election for 2,000 years, so if your brain hurts after I spend two minutes on it, just join the party, okay? So the latest that's come out that I've heard about is called simultaneous election. Say, what does that mean, Pastor Michael? Well, here's what troubles people. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches election, that God chose us, right, from the foundation of the world. The question really becomes on what basis does he choose us? Well, 
here's how I understand simultaneous election. God is eternal. We often have heard illustrations that God has to look down a corridor of time and then he says, oh, that person will choose me or that person won't. Or other people say, well, he just decided that one's in, that one's out. Chosen, not chosen. In, out. Love him, don't love him. <laughs> but that's not really my understanding of it. God is eternal. God does not have to look down a corridor of time. Everything for God is now, right? He, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He knows everything, past, present, and future. This, is, this goes with his omniscience. He knows everything. So he doesn't have to learn anything. He doesn't have to look down a corridor of time. He already knows everything. So he knows who's going to be in and who's going to be out. So in simultaneous election, he simply chose you in his eternal nature, and you still have to respond to God. Now, people say, well, if God chose us, does that mean that we have no part to play? No, I think we do have a part to play. I think we still have to believe. I don't think God's going to repent for you, nor do I believe that God's going to believe for you. Because if he did, then the world is just basically we're a bunch of robots and we just respond to God because he makes us respond to him. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us to come to the Lord, to repent, to believe. So however you want to work this out, and look, I'm not going to be dogmatic even on the sim simultaneous election. I'm just going to say to you, God chose you. Aren't you glad? Amen. I mean, you could be in the unchosen category. I'm really struggling with the fact that I'm chosen. <laughs> well, I don't know what to tell you then. But as Spurgeon put it, I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he would have chose me after I was born. He never would have chose me. I don't even know how to make sense of that either. <laughs> For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, verse 1, which is according to godliness. Paul's ministry is around the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is used for God's desire for people to be saved. He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.5. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that people might come to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses and turn away from the snare of the devil. It's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 3.7. This would apply to Titus directly, who came to the knowledge of the truth, probably through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So that's what we do. We go out and preach the truth that people can be free. And Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is what we do. We go out. We want people to encounter the knowledge of the truth. If you want to write down 1 John 5, 20 and 21, it says, we know that the Son of God has come, he has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. The knowledge of the truth saves us. You gotta embrace it. And then we are sanctified by truth. We have verses in this sanctuary. Take a look up here for a second. Sanctify them in the truth. What? Thy word is truth. So we, are, we get saved by the knowledge of the truth. We grow. We get sanctified more as we interact with the knowledge of the truth. What is the knowledge of the truth? It is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So Paul's ministry is for people to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ 
And this knowledge of the, of the truth is according to godliness, end of verse one. Now, now this is why you, you're realizing we're only gonna do four verses, right? Because uh, we haven't gotten that far so far. Now, godliness is a Greek word called eusebia, E-U-S-E-B-I-A, eusebia. There's a church father called Eusebius, right? Eusebia is godliness. It speaks of holiness, piety, reverence. It is behavior that reflects one's true beliefs. Godliness, this is very important for this, this whole book. I told you you're saved by grace, but then you live out godliness. Godliness can be defined as a God-centered life or a God-dominated life. That's godliness. So if you ever wondered, what's the definition of godliness? Some people say it's God-likeness. To be imitators of God, certainly true. But it is a life that is centered in God. It's not a perfect life. If you would be called a godly young man or woman or uh, whatever it is, it's not because you're perfect. Everybody around you knows that, right? But godliness is a life that is on the climb towards more and more holiness. Not perfection, but growth. Godliness is centering your life in God and his priorities and purposes. God is not an afterthought to you. He is the center of your life. His word and his will and his ways dominate your decision-making. When you make decisions in life, you think about God. You think about God's word. You think about how this is going to impact the kingdom of God. That's godliness. So if godliness is a God-centered life, what is ungodliness? It's a self-centered life. It is, I, I'm going to coin a new term. The opposite of godliness is selfliness. Everybody write that down. Make sure you give me credit. Pastor Michael Lance, put the date on there. The opposite of godliness is selfliness. Now, this is captured well in this particular motion. Just look up here, and I'll show it to you. Everybody see that? That was Pastor Michael weekly illustrating a selfie. Now I'm just kidding. Selfies are not the illustration of ungodliness. They are partially an illustration. <laughs> Have you ever just walked away from an, an encounter with someone and just said, that person is selfie? You know what I'm saying? Selfie. You haven't? <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, let me tell you this about me and me and me, me and I. And then you try to tell the story and then me. They one-up you in their story. Brian Regan called it the me monster. <laughs> Said you could be at a party talking to someone and every time you tell something that you think is great, they one-up you. Well, me and the monster just starts to grow out of their forehead. Me and me. And me. They profess to know God, Titus 1.16, but by their deeds they deny him. There are people who say they know God, but then you look at their lives and you're like, uh, no. Godliness teaches us to say no 
That's Titus 2.12 in the NIV, to ungodliness and worldly passions. Look, godliness is a battle. To live a God-centered life, to surrender to God, to let God's way and word and spirit dominate you, it's, it's a battle. The flesh is always trying to get the upper hand. But godliness is a God-centered life, and ungodliness is a self-centered life. It's just simply put that way. You are listening to Living Truth Radio with Pastor Michael Lance. I'm Mike Massaro, and I know what you're thinking. Wait, why are you interrupting Pastor Michael's sermon? Well, I have a good reason. Since Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported program, it relies on donations from people just like you to stay on the air. And trust me, you can't always assume that someone else is going to be the one doing the donating. So if God has blessed you through our ministry, we'd encourage you to go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the donate button. Let's face it, the way the world's going these days, we need all the solid teaching we can get. So partner with us today. That's livingtruthradio.org. Now, back to Pastor Michael. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you're listening to this and maybe you're a fairly new Christian. You're thinking, man, that's a lot to ask of a person. Because all of our natural tendencies in the world are towards self. There's even a self magazine. Right? So how, or you might ask, why should I live this way? You know, that's a lot to give up, you might say. And here's what might follow this up, and I think this is a legitimate question. If I am going to live this way, then I want to know for sure that this whole deal is true. Because I hear some people say, People say, uh, being a Christian, even if there's not a God, has been the best way of life. Now, I would agree that there are many things about the Christian life that even if there wasn't a God are good things, but I'll say this to you. My flesh would say, I'm not sure I agree with that. So, look, the bottom line is, I want to make sure this is true. Now, I'm being real with you, folks. Look, I told you, if the Bible's not true, go to the beach Go do something else. I don't know why you'd listen to the same man, you know, 48 out of 52 weeks a year, whatever you people do. And it's, it's really an amazing miracle that you do this. I, I want to talk to you later about why you do it. But anyway, but look, you're not listening to a man, right? You're listening to the word of God. And the word of God, here's what it says. This hope that we have of eternal life, look at verse two. God has promised it and God cannot lie. Oh, aren't you glad? The book of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. It's opposite of his nature. He's the God of truth. God cannot lie. He's never been caught in a lie. He cannot lie. He's made a promise to us. And that promise was based in eternity past. In fact, some of the versions say uh, where it says promise long ages ago, it says before time began, you were always in God's plan before time began. He knew you, he loved you, and he called you. He loved you before he made time. Try to get your head around that one. And the promise that he's made to you of the hope of eternal life. See the word hope there? Hope is not like we say, I hope that 
the Atlanta Falcons win the Super Bowl. Okay. Hope there's no Falcons fans in here. Now, the Patriot fans are saying, I hope the Patriots win the Super Bowl. That was a pretty amazing Super Bowl, wasn't it? But anyway, we're not going to go there. But here's the thing. When, I, when I, we say, I hope something's going to happen, that's our modern way of saying, gee golly, I, we'll give it the college try. Who knows? The word hope in Greek is elpis. It's an incredible word. The word hope in Greek means, I know so. This hope cannot fail. It is that this hope in Hebrews 6 is described as the anchor of our souls. It's not I hope so, it's I know so, and it's based on the concrete confidence of the finished work of Christ. Amen? You don't have to wonder. God is the one who made the promise. He made it in eternity past, and it's impossible for God to lie. The promise is as good as God's word is. Can you bank your life on God's word? I think so. But at the proper time, verse 3, manifested even his word. That's the word lagos here. It can mean, it can speak often of Jesus or the preaching of the word. In the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, Paul says this, this promise from God made an eternity past manifested itself. You could say it manifested itself, namely in the person of Christ, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? It says in Galatians 4.4 4, that when the time was just right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those of us who were under the law, that's all of us, under the condemnation of the law. It's been manifested, and it's been manifested in the proclamation, which Paul is up to, which I was entrusted. Paul said he gave it to me to preach it to the Gentiles, and it was the commandment of God our Savior. By the way, the proclamation of Paul and ours is not a suggestion. The, it's not called the great suggestion in Matthew 28. It's called the great commission. God has commissioned us to preach the good news, right? To tell people how they can be free. And so Paul said, I'm pouring myself out to this ministry. This is what I do. And by the way, this is what the church does. And don't think of the church as a building now. You are the church. No matter where we might meet, no matter if we met under a tree or in a building, you're the church. And every one of you has a spiritual gift, at least one, probably several, to carry out the ministry that God has called you to do. And he has a spiritual gift that he's given you, and that spiritual gift is personal to you, and you're supposed to live out that spiritual gift so that the message can be proclaimed. Sometimes you earn the right to be heard at work. Someone watches you for a while and says, hey, what is it about you? Sometimes you have a moment and you get to pray with somebody. And sometimes you're doing a Bible study somewhere and someone listens in and is curious. Sometimes you have to preach to somebody for 10 years. And finally they say, okay, I'm now open. Whatever it may be, God wants to use you and me. Paul poured himself into others so that they could also hear the truth and then become proclaimers of the message. Think of Timothy and Titus, and you've got the idea. And then he says, finally, for verse four for this morning, to Titus, the letter is from Paul to Titus. He calls Titus my true child in a common faith. Now, I don't know if you can really think about how earth-shattering this is. 
a former Jewish Pharisee calls a Gentile man my true child in the faith. That is earth-shattering. In first century uh, Israel, that didn't happen. Jewish people didn't even walk into the homes of Gentiles to eat a meal with them. Peter was uh, afraid to go into the house of Cornelius. He thought it would make him unclean. And now Paul says, Titus has become my child. You know, in the body of Christ, what happens is that all divides, whether they be along racial lines or whether they be along, you know, whatever, whatever you want to talk about that, you know, political, that causes people to be at enmity with one another is obliterated in Jesus Christ. Now, I know we have our opinions, right? I know we have our outlooks on life in terms of maybe your political point of view. But in the end, all of those things dissipate at the foot of the cross. We are family. And we're supposed to behave as family. We're supposed to love each other as God loves us. And Paul says, Titus, you are my true child. Relationships in the body of Christ are so precious. I don't think there's anything like them in the whole world. Because this family, we've been freed by the same Savior. We serve the same Lord. The blood that saved me saved you. The Christ that saved me saved you. And we're going to a forever place where we're going to get to hang out. In a, and here's the really good news, because some of you are saying, but some people... Look, in the church, they're a pain. I know. But look, I got good news. All of our rough edges are going to dissipate in eternity. No more of that anymore. No more selfies in eternity. People are going to invite you into the picture. It'll be great. <laughs> we have a common faith. It unites all believers, Jews, Gentiles alike. Jesus is our Savior. In the Roaring Twenties, a story is told about John Griffith. He had a young son, and there's been different versions of the story told, but John Griffith had a young son, and he was a bridge operator, and so what he would do is he would, he would uh, raise and lower this huge bridge for ships that would pass through this area. And he took his young son you know, to this bridge one day, and so he was enjoying time with him. They had packed a lunch, and somehow, you know, he, he fell into a nap or something, and the young son got away. And it turns out that the story says that the young son somehow got himself caught in the gears of this, this huge bridge that was operating. And John Griffith heard the whistle of the oncoming train, and so there were several hundred passengers on the train, and his son was screaming to him, you know, caught in the gears, and, and he realized he didn't have enough time to go rescue his son and still lower the bridge in time for the passengers to safely cross. And so he was faced with the decision. Do I sacrifice my son or these several hundred people, or do I run up and grab him and these people plunge to their sure death? What do I do? So as the story is told, John Griffith decides that the thing that he has to do is he has to sacrifice his son. And he covers his face, tear-stained face, and he pushes on the handle, and the cries of his son are drowned out by the passing train. And he looks into the windows of the train, 
and he sees a man reading a newspaper and people you know, having tea and talking and a little boy eating a dish of ice cream that looks you know, a lot like his own child. And as the train passes and he sacrificed his own son, he screams at the train. He says, you, you people, don't you know what I've done for you? And he screams into the windows of the train, but no one can hear him and no one even realizes what he's just done. And do you realize that God loved you so much? He wasn't caught by surprise. All illustrations fall apart at some point, but it gives you an idea of what God did. God was willing to give his son that that passengers on, on the train might live. And brothers and sisters, you were on the train. If he doesn't give his son, you perish. But the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He did not spare his own son. He gave him so that we might be on a different train, right? A train that's headed to glory. That's what God did for you and for me. That's what we share in common. That's the message that we preach. That's the hope that we have. As I sit here in a studio recording a segment for Living Truth Radio, my heart is in many ways heavy over the news of what's happened in Las Vegas. And we have, uh, last I heard, 59 people dead and over 500 wounded. But in the end, really what's before us is another tragedy that raises all kinds of questions about why and where is God. I think the why question may be fairly easy to answer. We have a problem of evil. Evil is not just around us, evil is in us. And since the fall, man has had a bent towards evil, a bent towards sin. Way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, we watch Cain kill his brother Abel, really out of jealousy. And this, this tragedy that happened in Las Vegas, this shooting, you know, we may never know what the motive was, but w- what we do know is that this person, in a cowardly way, picking off people from, you know, an upper story of a hotel room in a desperate way, maybe wanting to take people with him, knowing that he was going to commit suicide. I can only speculate, but sure, that's it's what it seems like. Just killed a bunch of people, wounded others, and and, and people are reeling because their lives have been impacted. And, you know, we've, we've heard stories of people losing friends and, and children and uh, even people having someone they love die in their arms. And at times like this, you know, the question about where is God comes up. And God is where he has always been. He's on his throne. He hasn't moved. And, you know, one thing, I did an interview just recently on the heels of this tragedy, and I tried to say, you know, the one thing that gives me hope is that the God of the Bible entered into our pain in the person of Jesus Christ. And before he entered into our pain and shame and took our sorrow at the cross, he he made promises. Those promises are recorded in the scripture. They were promise of a coming redeemer, a Messiah, one who would die on our behalf, one who would conquer sin and death. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.